Um, sometimes when we pray, powerful things can happen. When my son Adam was born, he was the obedient child. He came on his due date. He was in the 25th percentile, 19 pounds, two ounces, no, excuse me, 19 inches, 19 and a quarter inches long, seven pounds, two ounces. He was in the 25th percentile. He was a healthy little guy, um, met all his little milestones. But then from age one to age two, something happened. He stopped growing. Um, at age one, he weighed 17 pounds. At age two, he weighed 18 pounds. I had a child who refused to eat. Um, and, you know, welcome to motherhood, thinking you can get your child to do something very basic, and he just, he wouldn't eat. Um, lots of tests, lots of heartache, um, seemed to be perfectly healthy otherwise, but had that diagnosis of failure to thrive. And eventually, um, you know, we found our way to a nutritionist, and I started packing all of his meals with as many calories as possible, right, you know, uh, heavy whipping cream in his scrambled eggs and, you know, with lots of butter and all, whatever I could do to get as many calories in every bite as possible. Um, but again, he was a sweet little boy, a bright little boy, met all of his, you know, developmental milestones. He was just on the small side. By age three, if you looked at his growth chart, he started growing again, whereas he had went. He flatlined, he started growing up again. But we never, we never got that growth back. And, you know, early elementary school for him um, was, was good. We put him in at Mount Calvary thinking, because I'm like, oh, he's so small, and being in a Christian school would, would be better for him. Um, but eventually, he realized that he was smaller than everybody else, and the other kids did too. And talk about heartbreak when, because I knew it bothered him, and I would be at the school and I would look out on the playground and the other children would come up to him and they would do this to show like his head was down here and their head was up here. And sometimes even they would pick him up and carry him around because they could. Heartbreaking. And bless his heart. He wanted to be an NFL football player. Um, and yet he had the sweet faith of a child um, who would ask, God, why am I not big? And I would say, oh, son, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And as he would cry himself to sleep at night, um, that was, you know, that was all that I, I really had to offer him was what the Word of God says, which is true. And, and I don't mean that end. That's all I had to offer. You know what I mean. I had truth to offer him, but as a little boy who so desperately wanted to be big, um, it just, it, it, it wasn't comforting for him. He couldn't understand. And it was an emotional roller coaster for me, right? Because I would have these cycles where I totally trusted God in what was happening. And then I would have these other moments where I'm like asking all these questions, God, why is he so small? Why can't he be bigger? Why can't you answer this prayer? And we would just go in these cycles. And I remember it was probably, it was probably in about fourth or fifth grade. Um, 
and my sweet little boy was starting to become angry um, and you know crying himself to sleep at night and all of these things which of course in a mother's heart and just really um, gets to you and I remember just being so distraught over this and um, spiritually my journey I was just starting to have my own personal um, devotional time reading the Word of God on my own just I was just just starting that journey of really digging into the scriptures but on this particular day the emotion I, I cannot remember what was going on but it was just an emotionally draining day for me and for the first time that I could remember since September 11th of 2001 I was on my knees in prayer before my God and I was crying out to God God I know you love my son why is he so small why can't he be bigger why can't he have friends who appreciate how small he is like instead of you know I mean just all of these things and as I'm crying as the tears are coming the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said lean not on your own understanding and I was like hmm? wait what what was that it was clear as day it was so clear I didn't even know the rest of the verse I mean this is how limited my Bible knowledge was but I knew that that was a word from the Lord and so then I had to go Google what what it was look up the whole thing trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding something powerful happened to me in that moment when I was praying crying my little heart out to God in a most sincere prayer but ladies that's not n anything like what happened to Daniel in chapter 9 powerful things can happen when we pray and so as we look into the book of Daniel um, just some initial observations <clears throat> we have 27 verses in three distinct sections that was pretty easy to see right <laughs> pretty clear um, we have kind of an introduction where it's setting the stage we have Daniel's prayer and then we have Gabriel's prophecy the 77s and so we're just going to take um, a look at the three parts of this chapter as we dive into our study today can somebody read Daniel 9, verses 1 to 3 for me? I, I love the Lord's house of Daniel. When I was reading this studying it, I thought, oh, I hope I never have to say that again in my life. <laughs> <laughs> a hash baroche. A hash baroche? A hash baroche. Wow. That's nowhere near what I would have said. I had to look it up. <laughs> in the first year of Darius, the son of Ashtoreth, by descent of me, was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, received in the book the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet, must pass until the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my 
faith to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and tears, with nurses, with fasting, and sackcloth, and ashes. Okay, so we can answer a few questions about this chapter just by looking at these two verses. So our first our first question we can answer is who? Who is writing this chapter? Daniel. <laughs> Daniel, right. And when? When is he writing it? It's the first year of Darius the Mede, 539 B.C. We know that from our timeline and just all of the other things that we have um, that we've been learning this year. Does anybody remember what else happened in 539 B.C.? More than Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> do we remember? Do we remember a, um, a banquet that maybe someone was having, and maybe some handwriting on the wall, right? Belshazzar was having his banquet. Um, in Daniel chapter 5 tells us about what happened. Belshazzar's reign was ending that night and the kingdom was given over to the Medes and the Persians. So when Daniel was writing this in chapter 9, there had been a, a change in government, a change in kingdoms. We went from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire and Darius the Mede was in power. So what's Daniel doing? What's happening? What is he doing on this day? He was praying. Well, before he was praying, what was he doing? Studying the Word. He was studying the Word. And we, you know, by the time we get to, to Daniel chapter 9, we know that he is a faithful man of God. He has, he has um, spiritual disciplines that he practices every single day. So this is nothing new for him. But on this day, in addition to um, searching the scriptures, he decided to journal it for our benefit. Aren't, aren't we excited, right? He did some journaling too. Um, and so um, it says in verse 2 that um, he perceived in the books, that's what the ESV, or the NIV says that he understood from the scriptures. So he was reading the Bible, and we also know a particular book he was reading that we can read today. Which book was it? Jeremiah. Jeremiah, that's right. So he was doing a Bible study, and he was journaling. Can somebody read for me Jeremiah? Whoops. Can somebody read for me Jeremiah um, 25, verses 8 to 11? Therefore, thus saith, says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing and perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take them, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, 
the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall, shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Okay. Wow. So this is the prophecy predicting the fall of Jerusalem and the exile, which was the last for how many years? Seventy years. What's the tone of these verses? Like somber. Yeah. Depressing. Yes. Dreadful. Yes. Um, and, and Daniel had recognized that, wait, this is... This is, this is our life. This is what's happened. Okay? Um, but let's look at some additional verses. Um, who has Jeremiah 29, 11, 10 to 14? For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Wow. What's the tone of these verses? Hopeful, promising, joyful. I mean, how many of us have clung to, for I, um, you know, to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? For I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, right? I mean, these were words written to the people of Israel when God said He was going to restore them. And so Daniel, reading from the book of Jeremiah, understands the horror of the exile and the fall of Jerusalem, but then the hope that is in the promise of the restoration. Now let's think about this. At this point, how long had God's people been in exile? Oh, that's a tricky one, right? 66 years. Dawn is awesome and great with math. That was from uh, Thursday night. Thursday night, right. (laughs) So they had been in exile about 66 years. I mean, Daniel obviously knows some math. In the the passage in Jeremiah, God said it was going to be 70 years. So he knows that the exile is coming soon to an end. That's exciting. And then those... You know, those words, those beautiful, hopeful words from Jeremiah are going to be fulfilled. It makes you, it makes you want to go, woohoo, right? But Yes, (laughs) finally, whoo. So Daniel was thinking the exile will be over soon. My Reformation Study Bible said, Daniel sees that two things are going to happen according to Jeremiah, the fall of Babylon and the restoration of the people in the promised land. The first has happened at the time of Daniel's prayer, but the second has not. Therefore, 
Daniel beseeches the Lord to accomplish the second. Now, it's curious because in verse 3, he turned his face to the Lord and prayed, pleaded, fasted, and put on sackcloth and ashes. Well, that doesn't sound like something you would do if you were jubilant and happy. It sounds a little different, doesn't it? So let's, let's get some details on what this means. Um, I like to break it down, just line by line, right? So first thing he did, he prayed and he pleaded. Now Daniel, being a man of God, he knows God will do what he says he will do. So why does Daniel pray for God to accomplish his purposes laid out in Jeremiah to bring the people back and restore them? I mean, God said he was going to do it. He did the first part of Jeremiah. I mean, imagine praying, oh, Lord, please exile your people, right? Like, that seems backward. Um, but um, he still wanted to, um, he's, hold on, I just lost my thing. Um, he still wanted to pray that God's will would be done. David Jeremiah says, God knows his plan, and even when he reveals his plan to us, he expects us to pray over that plan. Just like earlier today when Dawn was praying, if it be your will, God. Right? We pray for the will of God. So, so let's go back to verse 3 and look at it again. So he, he prayed and he pleaded. He was praying to God. He was talking to God. He pleaded, Lord, let it, you know, fulfill your will, will, and he fasted. David Helm writes, fasting is the withholding of food from the body for the sake of prioritizing something else, such as prayer. Sackcloth, because it says, remember, he put on sackcloth, was a rough material, most likely made from animal skins, usually goat hair, that would have been an irritant to the skin and was a mark of repentance. So it was not a fashion statement. Ashes symbolize complete ruin. In other words, the posture Daniel took was one of visible lament. Visible lament. Now to me that seems surprising when he just read the prophecy in Jeremiah that God was going to bring them back from exile and restore them. But we have to remember there's always more to the story. There's always more to the story. Warren Wearsby pointed, points us to the book of Hosea. And in chapter 1 in the book of Hosea, um, the prophet is told by God to take as his wife a prostitute. And her name was Gomer. And she was representing, she was representative of how Israel had prostituted herself against God. Hosea does what he's told. And she has some children, and God gives them names that are representative of his people. So let's look at um, Hosea chapter 1, verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel so what is the name here giving to the child which is representative of Israel no mercy 
The NIV, um, it translated it as not loved. So, so let's, then let's look at um, Hosea 1, verses um, 8 and 9. After she has been removed, Sounds great. <laughs> and another son, then the Lord said, Call him, Lo, a me, which means not my people. You are not my people, and I am not your God. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. So even though Jeremiah's prophecy had talked about restoration, at that moment, God saw the people of Israel as no mercy, not loved, not his people, because Israel had broken its covenant with God. Wearsby says, when you are outside the covenant, you can't sincerely use his covenant name, Jehovah, and expect to receive covenant blessing, right? I mean, how many times, um, and I've had to use this example with some um, baby Christians, and I will say, you can't steal something and expect God to bless you with the getaway, right? I mean, <laughs> I know I shouldn't have stolen that, God, but can you please help me dodge the police and stay out of jail? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it just doesn't work that way. So Daniel, so we go back to Daniel, a man of prayer, a man of God's word, he reads the word of God. He clearly understands the prophecy of the restoration that is promised, but he also clearly understands the precarious position the people of Israel are in. They are outside the covenant of God. They are no longer seen as God's people, and thus he is clearly mourning and distressed over their sin. And so what does he do? And his own sin, right, and his own sin. And we'll see that as he is, as he is praying. He turns toward his God. He doesn't turn away. He turns toward his God, and he prays for God to fulfill his promise for mercy and restoration. Warren Wiersbe notes that this kind of prayer, pleading for forgiveness and mercy, is just the kind of prayer that God wants to hear and is actually written into the covenant that the people of Israel broke in the first place. So let's look at part of that covenant. See, I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, you know, we're, we're in one book, right? And so we, we, we're only looking at things in the context of what is happening right now. But we have to remember that the Bible was written as God's continuous story, right? It's his continuous revelation of his planned purposes for his people. And so we can't just look at, at Daniel in isolation. We have to look back and see how we got to where we are. So who has Leviticus 26 verses 40 to 42?
my covenant with Jacob, and my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Daniel knows the law. He knows he knows all of this. He knows that if Israel will confess their sins, if the people of Israel will confess their sins, God will remember his covenant and remember his people. That's awesome. That's awesome. So let's summarize. Oh, that's yeah. the first step to salvation is confessing our sins. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem. Yeah. Right, and so recognizing recognizing the sin, your you know Daniel's own personal sin, the sin of Israel, recognizing and understanding that, and and you can see his visible lament over that sin, the sackcloth, the ashes, the fasting, like all of that. You've got a man who recognizes his sinful state in the presence of a holy God and he humbles himself and he admits it and he but he turns toward God he doesn't turn away he turns toward God um, so let's summarize let's summarize where we are in our part one remember our chapter has three parts part one is setting the stage Babylon has fallen Belshazzar is out. Darius the Mede is in. Daniel is probably in his 80s. He's an older man. He's studying Jeremiah's prophecy and realized that the 70-year captivity is finally coming to an end. And God has promised to restore them after those 70 years. Woohoo! Right? Woohoo! But he's not feeling woohoo. He's feeling lament because of sin, his sin and the sin of the people of Israel. And that sin has put distance between them and God. And so he turns toward God and fervently prays for God to have mercy on him and his people and bring them home so that God would remember his promises to restore them. Like God would forget, he won't forget. But. So that leads us into part two of this chapter, and we have Daniel's prayer. I want you to just open your study materials in the little binder that we have and just look at, the, at verses 4 to 19. Just look at it. Just, just pull it out and look at it. We've got 16 verses of Daniel pouring his heart out. It covers from the middle of page 74 to the bottom of page 76. That's a lot of praying. It's long, right? It's long. And in this prayer, Daniel models for us some characteristics of effective prayer. And think about this, too. Daniel wasn't trained in the priesthood. He was praying, you know, praying as an intercessor for God's people wasn't necessarily part of his job description or his training, but he could pray. And the lesson for us is that we can pray too. He humbly prepared himself for prayer. Um, 
with the fasting and the sackcloth and the ashes. Wearsby notes that Daniel knew that his prayer would affect the lives of the Jewish people, and so he carried the weight of this holy task to confess the sins of Israel, everybody's sin, before God and ask for forgiveness. He writes, this is Wearsby, Preparation for prayer and worship is as important as prayer itself. For without a heart that is right with God, listen, listen to this. Our words are just so many pious words. Yikes! We want to offer our sincere prayers to God. I am so guilty of this. What comes to my mind, <laughs> this is terrible, is my, my prayer before I eat something. It's like, oh, Lord, thank you for this food. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Because I'm hungry. I want to get to it. And sometimes I have to pause and I have to say, Elizabeth, is that the way to address a holy God? No. Then I have to ask for forgiveness <laughs> and, and move on my way. <laughs> um, so my study Bible, again, it's a Reformation study Bible, described Daniel's prayer this way. The prayer is grounded on God's promises in verse 2 and offered in a spirit of contrition and humility. It is a model for the appropriate elements of an effective prayer. Warren Wearsby divides the prayer into three parts. Um, let's see. We have worship in verse 4. We have the confession of sin in verses 5 to 15. Do you see that? 5 to 15 confession of ver uh, the confession verses, my goodness. And then pleading for mercy in verses 16 to 19. And this is a plea for God's mercy based on concern for his name, his kingdom, and his will. So let's break down the prayer. Who has Daniel... Um, Chapter 9, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, so what does this verse say about God? Great and awesome who keeps his covenant. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. He keeps his steadfast love for those who love him, right? Now, we also learn some, different, some other things about God by the words Daniel chooses um, when he refers to God. So if you look at the Hebrew text of this verse, there are four different words that Daniel uses to refer to God, four different ones. Um, so when he says, I prayed to the Lord, in that, the, the Lord there is, um, it's Jehovah. And that is the covenant name of God. And it's only used in this chapter. This is the covenant name of God. Remember what Wearsby said, if you're outside the covenant, it's pretty difficult to call on the covenant name of God when you are praying. But Daniel turned toward his God and called on the covenant name. 
It means the existing one. It is the proper name of God. Um, it's used six times in this chapter. So this is the only chapter that it's used in, but it's used six times. The next part, my God, um, is Elohim. And when it's used in the plural, it means of the supreme God. It's used 13 times in this. Only three times is it used by itself. Typically, it's used with another name. It'll be like Adonai Elohim or Jehovah Elohim. In the next, in the next section, he says, and made confession saying, O Lord, that's Adonai. It's a title spoken in place of Yahweh. And it, it's a display of reference. It's showing, not reference reference, reverence um, for God. It shows a reverence for God. It's used 11 times. And then he says, the great and awesome God. And there, that word for God is El. And it is the one true God, Jehovah. And it's only used the one time here in verse 4. Wearsby writes, It's one thing to pray to the Lord and quite something else to be a worshiping intercessor. When we see the greatness and glory of God, it helps to put our own burdens and needs in a proper perspective. And just in this one verse, with all of these reverent names that Daniel is using for God, we can see how he worships him, how he has God in the, in his, in the proper place in his life. Beginning your prayer with worship is an effective model of prayer. And if we look, even when Jesus modeled, he even modeled starting our prayers with worship. Remember the disciple says, teach us to pray. And then he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And what is the verse, first verse of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, which... which which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like, how great is your name? Starting our prayers in worship helps us to focus our thoughts on who God is. And, again, puts him in the proper place. So remember, ladies, when you pray, start with worship. All right, now, confession. Oh boy, confession is not fun, is it? Phew. Take a moment in your study materials, and I want you, if you haven't already done this, I want you to go through and underline all the places in your study materials that describe the sin of the people. So just take a minute, kind of go through, underline it, circle it, whatever. If you want to cheat, you can look up on the screen. I highlighted them.
Is your head hand tired from all the underlining? I read through that. I highlighted it all, and all I could think was, goodness gracious. Or as my Aunt Tiny would say, Lordy mercy. <laughs> they were so bad. They were so bad. What are some of the things they did wrong? Just shout them out. What are some of the things they did right? Yeah, right, right. What are some of the things they did right? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. They rebelled, yes. They didn't listen. Acted wickedly. Wicked is a is a strong term. Wicked is a strong term. Shameful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Treachery was committed. Yes. Treachery. Yes. Yes. Refused to obey. Refused to obey. That's right. Turned aside from his commandments. I mean, it says in verse 6, it says, have not listened to the prophets. Not only did they not listen to the prophets, I mean, they ridiculed them. They mistreated them. For us, yeah. Right, no, no, we are not. And we as people are no better, you know? They, they had other gods, but we, we have the same gods. Mm-hmm. We don't. We don't. Right. <laughs> yeah. They did not obey his voice. Um, I mean, they sinned against a holy God. Um, rebellion. Um, if we look, what? Prayerlessness. Yeah, yeah. I like that he tells the major this thing. I mean, we might think, oh, that's so about saying Harvard. Sometimes it's hard. You can say all these things to God, but it's hard to actually say God's commandments. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Um, I mean, that's pretty strong in verse 11. All Israel, he, di- he didn't say, you people Israel. He said, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Remember, these are the people who experienced God in a way that we have not. I mean, the, the people... the. The people who were led out of Egypt were led by, you know, a pillar of cloud or fire. Like, they saw these awesome miracles, and they still, like, wanted to go their own way. But we're the same. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're doing awesome answer to prayer, and then we forget about it. Mm Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, we are no different. We are no different. I mean, see, (laughs) the... The Old Testament is my favorite, and I think it is my favorite because it means there's hope for me, (laughs) right? Because if they can mess up like they mess up all the time, there is hope for me. 
And that's why I, I do. I love the Old Testament. Um, so what happened to them as a result of their shame? If we look in verse 7, it says they deserved this open shame. Um, and they were driven to faraway lands because... Um, um, Yeah. So in verse 11, we have, it, it talks about, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the Son of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. So I'm reading that, and I'm like, huh, well, what's, what's the curse and the oath? What is that? Well, let's look at the law of Moses in Deuteronomy. Moses, in this, um, in Deuteronomy, in this part of Deuteronomy, Moses was giving some final instructions to his people. And in chapter 28, we see this whole list of blessings and curses. Um, who has Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 to 4? And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. So, I mean, there were blessings, abundant blessings. What do they have to do? Okay. Obey. <laughs> Carefully follow his commands. It sounds great, right? But God knew their heart. And so he reminds them of what will happen if they don't pay attention to his commands. And interestingly, the, the list of curses is way longer than the list of blessings. Um, but let's look... Um, in chapter 28, verses 15 and 16, who has that passage? Yep, Lisa. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Um, who has uh, Deuteronomy 28, 36? Okay. The Lord will drive you So the people of Israel should not have been surprised by the exile. They were told exactly what would happen if they did not follow the commands of God. But here they were, exiled and distant from their God, with his curses upon them because they broke the covenant. But what I love about Daniel is he's not complaining and he's not making excuses and he's not saying, God, you're so mean. You're so mean. He's not saying any of that. Um, you know, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And Daniel 
recognizes the righteousness of God in all of these events. In verse 14, in the middle of the confession, he says, the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. He knew that God would have blessed him had they just followed his commands, but they didn't. And so in verses 12 to 15, Daniel is not making any excuses for their behavior, but is acknowledging, he acknowledges God's past mercies. And in verse 15 specifically, he says, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. So he's looking back and saying, you did this, you had mercy and you did this. Lord, have mercy on us. In Daniel 9, verses 16 to 19, we have that plea for mercy. And it says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Do you hear the heart and the emotion in those words? He is begging God to extend his grace and mercy upon the people of Israel, him included. The people deserved wrath. We all deserve wrath. But grace is giving what we do not deserve. Mercy is withholding what we do deserve. So he's asking for mercy. Please let your anger and your wrath turn away. That's mercy because that's what we deserve. Lord, have mercy. And he's asking for grace. Make your face shine on your people. Do we deserve to have his face shine on us? No, we do not. And on what basis is Daniel asking God to do these things? What's the reason that he says that he's asking them? Because of God's great mercy. Right. Certainly not based on anything the people of Israel did. It's certainly not based on anything that we have done. But for his own sake, for the sake of his great name, because of his mercy. The CSB translation says because of his abundant compassion. Isn't that beautiful? His abundant compassion. So ladies, this is just a great reminder when we pray, 
What are we asking for when we pray? What is the purpose of us asking for anything when we pray? And I'm sure you're like, Elizabeth, where are you going with this? Well, who has 1 John 5, 14 to 15? That's you. It is you. <laughs> I'm in one John book. Okay. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Right. So David Jeremiah says that prayer is not to get God to change his will. If we really believe the will of God is perfect, then why would we want him to change it? Hmm. A lot of times when we pray, we are asking God not to fulfill his will in our lives, but rather to do what we want. We want healing for ourselves or our family members. We want certain people to win a political election. We want safety for our loved ones when they travel. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? But as David Jeremiah continues, he says, Prayer is not getting God to adjust his program to what we want. It is adjusting our lives to the revealed will of God. When we pray, it isn't God who changes, it's us. And so let's think about that for just a minute, right? Is it wrong for us to pray for healing? No. No, it's not. But what if healing isn't the point? What if the real prayer is, Lord, glorify your name through my illness. Give me strength to endure this so that my life will be a testimony of your goodness. Yes, we want healing, but we want healing for the glory of God. If we truly believe that God is sovereign, that he is good, that he is holy and righteous, then everything that he does is good and everything he does is for his glory. And that also means everything that he allows and everything that happens, God can use for his glory. Even our sin, even sin, horrible, egregious sin that is committed against people. God in his goodness, for whatever reason, has allowed these things to happen. And God is the one who can redeem these horrible things or these bad things. I mean, you know, when you think about it, why are we even here? Why don't we just poof to heaven the moment we get saved? The Westminster Shorter Catechism ask in the first question, what is the chief end of man? Which means, yes, it, the answer to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So when we look back at Daniel, when we look back at Daniel, he is confessing the sins of the people of Israel, his included, and pleading for mercy, not just so they can be restored, 
and have sunshine and lollipops again and rainbows and all those wonderful things. No, it's because in doing so, God's name will be glorified. Wearsby writes, Daniel desires the nation to be stored that God might be glorified. After all, the Jews were God's chosen people and Jerusalem was the place of his holy temple. The longer the people in the land were under God's wrath, the less glory God would receive. So what can we learn from Daniel's prayer here? Some marks of effective prayer. We need to prepare our hearts like Daniel did. And guilty as charged. I do not always prepare my heart when I come before a holy God in prayer. Come before him with humility and reverence. We want to worship him in our prayer. Remind yourself just how great and awesome he is. I like to play a little game sometimes. I like to take the letters of the alphabet and, and find a name or a, a word that talks about God. So I'll start with A. Oh, he's awesome. He's amazing. He's almighty. B. Hmm, he's benevolent. He is bold. Oh, he is my banner, right? Um, He's beautiful, yes. So think of, you know, as you, are, as you pray, get yourself in the right frame and worship him. Confess your sins. Don't make excuses. Tell it like it is. I don't like confession. I don't like having to admit it. But I tell you what, Every time I will humble myself and, and admit my sin and confess it, um, it is as if a weight is lifted off me. Or if we can admit, I'm wrong, or you're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Help. And, you know, and it's okay. It's okay to say, Lord, forgive me for, um, you know, I don't know, forgive me for not being content. Lord, help me be content. And you know what? He's faithful. He loves a prayer like that. Loves it. And make your requests for the glory of God. At Mount Calvary, uh, several months ago, Matt did a message. We all got these little cards, the Bible verse memorized. Father, glorify your name. That should be part of every one of our prayers. God, glorify your name through this. And we know that God did answer this prayer. He did answer Daniel's prayer. Wearsby notes that the following year after this prayer, Cyrus issued a decree that permitted the Jews to return to their land and take the temple treasures with them and restore their worship. Now we are at part three, a prophetic encounter. So let's pick up the text um, back in Daniel chapter 9. Um, who has verses 20 to 24? Oh, I'm sorry. I just... While I was speaking and praying, 
confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. And while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people. Oh, hold on. Oh, that's good. Was that 24? Um, oh. That's in the middle of 24. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I should have just yeah. been 23. I'm sorry. I should have just been 23. Okay. So, did you catch what was happening here? Daniel was, you know what's interesting? I just noticed this. He was speaking and praying. So he was most likely praying out loud. He's most likely praying out loud. I don't know. This is what it sounds like to me, praying out loud. Confessing his own sin and the sin of the people. Um, but did you catch the other exciting part and, and not the part where an angel just appears? I mean, that's pretty exciting, right? <laughs> but in verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell you that you are greatly loved. Wow. When David cried out for mercy, his prayers were heard because he was greatly loved. Well, and in Ephesians, like it tells us that prayer is part of the spiritual armor. And we don't see what's going on in heaven. We know right. we're in a spiritual battle. So when you pray, does God ever send out angels? I don't know. Yeah. He did hear. He did hear. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. When we pray, things happen. Um, David Helm writes, the beautiful, no, excuse me, the wonderful truth is that God delights in hearing his children speak to him, especially when our prayers center on the glory of his name. In the first 19 verses of Daniel, Daniel was seeking the Lord in prayer. And as Daniel's words went up, God's word was already running down to him in reply. That's beautiful. That's just beautiful. Not only did Gabriel show up to tell Daniel that his prayers were heard and that he was dearly loved. I mean, even if it had just stopped at that, this would have been a remarkable encounter. And we could have just closed the book there and, and still would have been awesome, right? But there's more. He also came to tell him what is coming. And so let's look at that passage. Daniel 24, verses uh, 24, excuse me, Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. Who has that? Oh. 70, <coughs> 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish your transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. <coughs> To bring in everlasting righteousness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, 
I kind of wish Gabriel had just stopped with the, and you are greatly loved. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this sounds pretty heavy. We may not understand all what it means, but it's bad. Sounds kind of bad. Um, so without getting into what it means, we can make some observations about what it says, though. We can make some observations. So what, what is being decreed? What is being decreed? Seventy-sevens, yep. Seventy weeks are being decreed. Depending on your translation, it may say seventy-sevens or seventy weeks. Um, and there's even a breakdown in the weeks. We've got seven weeks, we've got 62 weeks, and then we've got one week. M Yeah. So, what's a week? What's a week? <laughs> well, in prophecy, you have to ask the question. Um, David Gusick writes that there is almost universal agreement among biblical scholars and commentators that this refers to 70 sets of seven years. So, one week equals seven years. This is one of the few things that commentators in this prophecy agree with. <laughs> um, they most, they most all of them agree that the 70 weeks then represents 490 years. And then they agree that you can break them down into these three parts. Seven times seven is 49 years, seven times 62, 434 years, and then seven years again. And then they disagree on lots of things. <coughs> they disagree as to whether this is a continuous sequence, or maybe there's a break in between. You might hear the word, there's a parenthesis between one section to the other. But what it does tell us is the promised restoration of God's people and his sanctuary is going to come in three stages. Notice 
though, the verses in Jeremiah promise restoration after the 70-year exile. That even though, so the verses in Jeremiah are promising restoration after the 70-year exile, God is saying here that there is still more to be done in order to accomplish His purposes. My study Bible said, the 70 years of which Jeremiah spoke and which are now nearing an end will be extended into a longer period of 70 times 7 years. They need a little bit more time to get their act together, right? They just a little bit more time, just a little. Oh, but then we get into a little more disagreement from all of our smart Bible commentators because then you have to ask the question, What's a year? Hmm. Today, a year is 365.25 days, and then we throw a leap year in every four years. During the Old Testament times, the Jewish calendar had 360 days in their calendar. So these differences make it difficult to specifically line up dates in the historical record. And so there are disagreements between the actual meanings. And what's really interesting is, you know, people line up on their beliefs, right? I watched a message from John MacArthur teaching on this, and he was very adamant that this is the date. This is like he was so certain but then you read others and they are so certain that it's something else and so for the purposes of our study today I am that is just above my pay grade to try to figure that all out um, so we are gonna we are gonna focus on what we can focus on in this and um, because what's important is that God is telling Daniel in this vision that he has allotted an amount of time for the events of this prophecy and therefore don't worry I've got it trust me and hold on we here's something yeah Right. If he did, he would have said, yeah. and on this day, yeah. blah, da, 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 you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. 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 And, you know, and, and what's, what's great is, I mean, sometimes he was exact. I mean, sometimes he was very specific, like calling Cyrus out by name hundreds of years before he was even born. Right. If he wanted to be specific, he could have been specific, but he didn't. So. But we can, we can understand this question. What is the purpose of the 70 weeks? I mean, he, he's very clear on what the purpose of all of this is. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and anoint a most holy place. The purpose is clear. We gotta get rid of that sin. There has to be payment for the iniquity. And so from this point on, as I mentioned, the exact meaning and the fulfillment of prophecy is debatable. 
I'm going to give you some highlights as to what each of the verses might mean. We'll just kind of go with it. Um, in verse 25, um, I don't think I gave that to anybody. Um, so, so this verse, it talks about the first seven weeks plus the 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks, in order to clarify what's happening. So let's, we're going to look at this verse in the CSB because I thought it made more sense. Um, and it says, Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild the temple until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. So what, what can we know from this verse? Just in general, what can we know in this verse? What is one thing that is going to happen regardless of when? There's going to be an anointed one. Yes. Jerusalem is going to be restored. Yes. But what's going to happen first? A decree is going to be issued. And that decree is going to say, restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And that is the start of the first seven weeks. When that decree comes out, that's, that is when the clock starts ticking. Okay? Now, there have been lots of decrees. <laughs> so, um, of the different commentaries and things that I read, like, ladies, I like things just laid out, logical, step, step, step. David Gusick did the best laying it out. So I'm going to put that up here, what he, how he laid it out, of the possibilities. So we've got four possible options when we're looking at what, what decree was it. Because it, it had to fulfill these requirements. It had to be issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And so there was the decree that Cyrus made giving Ezra, uh, excuse me, Ezra and the Babylonian captives the right to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That was in 538. Most scholars don't go with that one, but it was a decree. Okay. Darius made a decree giving Ezra the right to rebuild the temple in 517. Could, could be that one, maybe. Hmm. Artaxerxes made a decree that gave Ezra permission, safe passage, and supplies to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That was in 458 B.C. There is another one that Artaxerxes made giving Nehemiah permission, safe passage, and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls. David Gusick says, only the last of these four decrees was a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The first three each focused on the temple, not on the street or the wall. My man Warren Wearsby agrees with the last one, the decree given to Nehemiah. Do we know for sure? Mm, no. Um, what else do we see in this verse? Let's see. We know the decree is going to be issued, but then what else? 
Yes, it's going to be, like there's a particular way it's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be trouble. Yep. What else? We have an anointed one. He's coming. Who is this anointed one? If you look at that word in the Hebrew, it is Mashiach, Mashiach. And that's where we get the word Messiah. It also says a ruler or a prince, which in the Hebrew is Nagid, which means a prince of the people. Most scholars agree that this anointed one is Jesus. Woohoo! But then I found one that said it was Cyrus, and I'm like, ah! You know, like, like no! So, so anyway. Um, but let's, let's do some math. We're gonna put our math brains on. Morgan's like, ooh, math! Yay! <laughs> um, okay, so we have our 70 weeks and our 62 weeks, and that gets us to 69 weeks. And so remember, a week here is seven years. So we get to 483 continuous years for this Messiah that's come. But we aren't exactly sure when we're supposed to start counting these 483 years. We don't know exactly. Our calendar, like I said, our calendar is 365 days. The Old Testament calendar is 360 days. We know our Messiah. But are, we know he came, but are we talking about his birth? Are we talking about his baptism that was the start of his ministry? Are we talking about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Are we talking about the date of his crucifixion? Because remember, he said it is finished. We don't know. Don't know. But I thought David Gusick had two options that were compelling. And I'm just going to read this. I'm just going to read what he said. Some say the 483 years were completed at his baptism, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, if you date that at A.D. 26. This is possible if one begins with the earlier decree of Artaxerxes and figures with our present measurement of years, 365.25 days to a year, instead of the 360 days, right? So if you go with that option three, with the earlier decree to Ezra, and you go um, 483 today years, you get to the date of his baptism. Huh? That's kind of compelling. Some say, however, the 483 years were completed at the triumphal entry of Jesus, if that was dated at A.D. 32. And there's a man, I didn't do a lot of research on him, his name is Sir Robert Anderson. He had what they called a significant work called The Coming Prince. And he followed this argument in great detail, and I'm thinking this comes from his book, or no, somebody, anyway, this is what it says. Anderson, using a 360-day year which Israel used in Daniel's day, calculated 173,880 days from the decree to
to the triumphal entry, fulfilling the prophecy to the day. It is customary for the Jews to have 12 months of 360 days each and then to insert a 13th month occasionally whenever necessary to correct the calendar. <laughs> but that's pretty compelling. I mean, to the day, if we mark it from the time the one decree, 173,880 days to the time of the triumphal entry, I mean, that's pretty compelling. We don't know. But what's the point? What's the point? And the point is, God says, at the appropriate time, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. An anointed one will come, and it will be a difficult time. That's what's important. Let's look at verse 26. Did I give that to anybody? I don't think I did. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war. There will be war. Desolations are decreed. So after this messianic ruler makes his appearance in verse 25, we see here that he is then cut off. What does that mean? Wearsby writes, The Christ will not be permitted to rule for his people. For his people cried out, We have no king but Caesar, in John 19.15. The Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. The NIV says, and will have nothing. This speaks of his rejection by the Jews and his crucifixion as a criminal, turned over to the Roman authorities by his own people and one of his own disciples. But he died for the sins of the world, including the sins of the Jewish nation. So the anointed one will be cut off. Our Jesus was crucified. But then what does it say? Then it says, the people of the coming ruler, so we have another ruler here. What about this ruler? What about this guy? Um, It says in the CSV, it says the coming ruler. In the ESV, it is the prince who is to come. What do we know about this ruler from this passage? Really only that his people will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Some commentators refer to, the, to, general, uh, to Roman general Titus, whose army destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70, or it could be a future antichrist. Wearsby says that the Romans are the people of the prince that shall come, And that prince is the future Antichrist that Daniel described as the little horn in Daniel 7 and the blasphemous king in Daniel 8. Others think, see, I mean, can you see why my brain was just like overwhelmed? This was, this was crazy. Others think that the people of the coming ruler are the Jews of the day whose rejection of Christ led to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But again, we go back to what's the point of this? What does it say? The anointed one, Jesus, will be cut off. The city will be destroyed. He was and it was. 
in verse 27, we talk about the last week of this prophecy. And it says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of ab abominations shall come one who makes, des who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the de desolator. Okay, that's hard. <clears throat> the he in this verse is referred to as the coming prince or the Antichrist. Wearsby, again, he writes, we are now in the final seven years of the prophetic calendar that Gabriel gave Daniel, the period that we know is the Great Tribulation or the Day of the Lord. While the world has always known wars and desolations, the end of the age will in introduce a time of terrible suffering that will climax with the return of Jesus Christ. So what does this passage say that the, this Antichrist will do? What's he going to do? Yep, he's going to make a covenant with the people. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. With the, on the covenant, Wearsby believes he is the little horn who emerges from the ten horns in Daniel 7 and that he will covenant with the Jewish people to protect them from their enemies so they can rebuild the temple. After, however, after three and a half years, he will break the covenant and seize the temple and put his own image there and force the world to worship him. Um, he will also cause abomination and desolation until the end that is decreed and that the in, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Abomination is translated as horrific idolatry. David Gusick says that this prince will desecrate the temple in such a horrible way. Jesus called this the abomination of desolation. Doesn't that sound heavy? The abomination of desolation. He talked about that in Matthew 24, 15 and indicated that it would be a pivotal sign in the Great Tribulation. And then what else is going to happen? What happens when the 70 weeks are over? The desolator himself is going to be destroyed and the righteous will rule. Who do you think this person could be? Who, who is it? I don't know. Some think it could be Antiochus Epiphanes. Others think it's a future Antichrist who is to come. Don't know. It is above my pay grade to try to figure it out. What's the point? At the appointed time, an Antichrist will come. Half of the time, he's going to play nicey-nice. Then his true colors are going to come out, and horrible things are going to happen. But his time will come to an end because God wins. He has risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. So what are we to make of this chapter? So packed full of good stuff in here. Let's look at our three parts. We have our introduction and our prayer and our prophecy. 
and how can we, you know, summarize this amazing chapter? Daniel shows us the power of our daily spiritual disciplines, preparing our hearts for prayer, searching the scriptures, journaling, meditating on verses, and bringing our prayers before our awesome and powerful God. He shows us that when we pray, things happen. God hears the prayers of those he loves. And ladies, he loves you. And this chapter shows us that God is clearly in control of all events. We don't need to know the exact interpretation of this prophecy to know the key takeaways. Because of Israel's sin, curses came upon them. That was the exile. But God remembered his promise to them and set appropriate times for everything. When Daniel searched the scriptures, he prayed that God would fulfill his promises. God heard him and sent a messenger to show him that he has everything under control. He said a decree would go out. It did. Jerusalem would be rebuilt. It was. He said things would be difficult. They were. He said Messiah would come. He did. He said Messiah would be cut off. He was. He said Jerusalem would be destroyed again. It was. Therefore, we can trust that Antichrist has either come or will come. Things will be bad. Antichrist is going to be destroyed. God wins. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so, let's check our time. We have about oh, 15 minutes. I'm sorry, ladies. I went a little long. <laughs> um, do you have any questions or comments or thoughts on that? Don't ask too hard a question. I might not can answer it. <laughs> Anything? <laughs> <laughs>